So we are here today to talk about the country of Afghanistan, uh, specifically because there's been some news made about it recently. Asanka. These recent weeks have brought tremendous change to Afghanistan with the takeover of Kabul by the Taliban. Can you provide some context to what's occurring at the moment? Sure, and uh, thank you for having me today. Um, the current situation in Afghanistan is the result of decades of uh, policy decisions uh, in the West and also in the East um, that have created somewhat of a perfect storm for the rise or and the, the if you want to call it the resurrection of the of the Taliban and um, a power vacuum that has crept into the country despite all the efforts of the United States and NATO to build a viable nation state. Um, the history of Afghanistan is one of extraordinary complexity. Um, it's a country that was essentially a, a loose collection of tribes where people are more likely within the country to affiliate with their tribal affiliation than their um, uh, than any form of a nation state um, due to the geographical boundaries of the country you have a um, or the geographic topography of the country it's almost impossible sometimes for people in Kabul to even relate to what's going on in Herat or Helmund or any of the other cities in the and provinces throughout Afghanistan it has some of the most vicious terrain on earth uh, which makes it very difficult to to manage. And if you can think of it um, from a kind of just a pure supply chain perspective, there are very narrow roads <laughs> throughout the country which make the transport of goods and services. And if you are a outside military force, it makes it very difficult to, to manage uh, respective provinces simply because it's hard to move your your troops or your goods uh, where they need to go. So there were a lot of factors contributing to the recent um, fall of the Afghani national government, corruption, uh, mistrust with the community, and kind of a systemic inability of Kabul to, despite its inclination to be a progressive economic hub of Afghanistan, to reconcile its differences with the urban, or sorry, with the uh, rural um, community. So let's take a step back now. Can you give us a brief historical overview of Afghanistan? Sure. You know, it's, it's interesting because these days most people <clears throat> associate Afghanistan with war and, and, and terrorism. Um, certainly ISIS and the Taliban have done a lot to contribute to that narrative. But the reality is that as if you look back into, for example, the 1960s, you probably wouldn't recognize Afghanistan. It was a country largely stable, economically prosperous, with a ruling monarch who encouraged uh, very progressive policies. And uh, women were uh, educated, freely educated. There were jazz bars in Kabul. If you talk to the locals at that time, Kabul, in their, from their perspective, was even better than the, the capitals of Europe. No one had a desire to leave Afghanistan. Um, and it was very tragic, the events that unfolded after the 1960s and that relative period of prosperity and peace, 1960s, 1970s, just shortly after its independence from the British, um, that uh, brought Afghanistan to where it is today. Number one was the overthrow of the monarchy, 
by the uh, communist-inspired um, uh, army, followed by a complete takeover of the country by the Communist Party, and then the subsequent Soviet intervention in the 1980s, which thoroughly destabilized the country and gave rise to the Mujahideen. Um, and then following the withdrawal of the Soviets after excessive American intervention uh, via, the, via the CIA and other clandestine services, left very unstable st- government and eventually a complete power vacuum of competing warlords. Um, one was the famous Northern Alliance and then... Um, the other one were the more kind of conservative Islamic Mujahideen. And that conflict raged for a good part of the 1990s until a group of student, uh, mil- uh, a student militia known as the Taliban, which were actually uh, heavily trained by the Pakistani ISI, came in to Afghanistan and uh, assumed complete control, I believe, in 1996, which then... Um, implemented or they implemented a very harsh form of Sharia law that uh, governed the day-to-day life of Afghanis and to the shock of many in the West. But ultimately, the West chose not to intervene in anything until the terrible events of 9-11 when um, President George W. Bush asked the Taliban to turn over Al-Qaeda leader, senior Al-Qaeda leadership and the, and the Taliban didn't, which resulted in a um, concerted effort by the United States military to overthrow the Taliban uh, in conjunction with its NATO allies. And then for the last 20 years or so, we've uh, been engaging in a, in a as, as well as we could, a, uh, and we as in the United States, and its NATO allies, nation building, uh, trying to set up a democratically viable government inside of Afghanistan, uh, which ultimately proved to be too corrupt and uh, too spread thin and lacking true allegiance from the varying tribes in Afghanistan to be a cohesive unit to withstand external pressures. And uh, when I say external, meaning the Taliban. Why do you think that is that the government that the United States and other Western allies put together, why do you think that it's been over 20 years and they couldn't find any success keeping out corruption and uniting the tribes? So I think that goes back to a very systemic issue when it comes to external management of Afghanistan. And this dates back to Genghis Khan, to Alexander the Great, to the British Empire, to the Soviets, and now to America and its NATO allies. There are three very core pillars that contribute to Afghanistan's instability. Number one is that the Afghani people are really a collection of disparate tribes which affiliate more at the tribal level than they do with a nation state. And for that reason, um, it is very difficult to have people swear allegiance in to the whole rather than to their individual communities. And that leads to <clears throat> a lot of infighting and um, a lot of weakness with central authorities and a mistrust, as it were, between these different competing factions about what's occurring in each respective province uh, number two is the geography of, of Afghanistan. 
Um, and one of the main reasons why it's very extraordinarily difficult to suppress any form of an insurgency, as it were, or as it's termed, whether it have whether whether it was the Mujahideen in the during the Soviet time, or the Taliban during the United States and NATO's time in Afghanistan, the harsh terrain, which is virtually impossible to without large deployments of troops, which are considered to be very politically inexpedient for Western liberal democracies, um, give home ground advantage to, um, to native insurgents. The, the weak roads and road system and infrastructure of Afghanistan connecting the different provinces make it very difficult once you take control of a particular area to maintain it because very quickly, a supply chain can be cut off by just a few individuals because it's only one road leading into a giant province. And so you may control the province, but suddenly you have no control over the supply of that province. And that makes your occupation or presence very untenable. Um, and number three is the boundaries of Afghanistan are artificial. Uh, and this ties back to my first point about the tribes. When the British divided... Afghanistan into, into the nation state that it is today, it was originally bordering um, India. Now, India's independence came in the 40s, and then the subsequent split into India and Pakistan. Now, people are very familiar with what happened with India and Pakistan at the when it, the division occurred, which was that the Punjab region and the Punjabi people were split. A lot are not familiar with what happened to the Pashtuns, which uh, very in a, in a similar way, the Pashtuns, which where the Taliban come from, are were split between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so again, tying back to that same theme of tribal affinity, you have a very receptive population on the western border of Pakistan, which will side with and provide aid and comfort to the Pashtun ethnic Pashtuns, who formed the bulk of the Taliban, so they were would be able to fight proxy wars of attrition against America, the American and uh, NATO troops, and then slide into Pakistan outside of the reach of NATO forces, regroup, rearm, rest, and then come back again across the border. Now, the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan until recent, very recently, and now they have a more robust wall, was very porous. Anyone could go back and forth. And so that kind of last pillar of the equation made it virtually impossible for uh, American and NATO allies to um, to manage Afghanistan in the long term. So we're talking about Afghanistan right now, and when we hear about Afghanistan, oftentimes we hear about it in context of war. Um, is there a reason for that? Why is that? Well, you know, unfortunately, um, Afghanistan for the last 40 years has been mired in war, uh, whether it was the Soviet occupation in the 1980s and then the, the terrible civil war that followed between the warring factions inside of Afghanistan, the, the Mujahideen splintered into several different groups, and then the rise of the Taliban coming out of Pakistan, out of the madrasas in Pakistan, and eventually seizing power, and then the NATO-led, American-led um, uh, military action in the post-9-11 environment, and then the subsequent kind of war of attrition by the Taliban and extremists against the NATO an American presence, it's, it really has been a never-ending war. Um, 
but that said, there was a period in Afghan's history, in Afghani history in the 1960s and early 70s where it was a very peaceful, prosperous place. And that's what's so tragic about this entire situation. Prior to the abdication of the monarch um, and the takeover by the communists, in relative terms, Kabul was, was, was stable, prosperous, um, progressive, um, a high emphasis on education, on infrastructure development, and an embracement of Western ideals and norms, whether it was clubs, theaters, uh, jazz cafes, and the enfranchisement of women. And, you know, in many respects, the situation that unfolded in its Western neighbor, Iran, where the um, where Tehran and, and under the Shah's rule, the country modernized rapidly in Tehran, but the rest of the country, which is more conservative and religiously based, felt tremendous resentment towards the towards the progress because it threatened their value system. The same thing happened mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. And um, a lot of the countryside could never relate to what was occurring inside of uh, Kabul. And eventually they felt threatened and that led to the rise of the Islamists and the um, eventually the Mujahideen. So with all of this being said, what are the broader implications of the current events in Afghanistan to their region, but also to the globe? So it would be a fool's bet to think that the current situation in Afghanistan won't have an effect uh, both at a regional and a um, international level. Regionally, we're looking at a potential mass exodus of refugees both into Pakistan and to Iran, which would have a destabilizing effect, to say the least. Uh, The number of resources that will be required by these different governments to take care of these refugees and the intended strain this will put on their resources um, will result in a, a form of severe instability that um, no one could have predicted at the beginning of uh, 2021. On a global level, um, you have several different actors who are going to seek to make their presence known in the uh, aftermath of the American withdrawal. Number one is China, who, um, for geopolitical reasons as well as uh, economic reasons, there's a tremendous deposit of uh, minerals in Afghanistan that they want access to. The Chinese will engage with whatever form of government there is uh, inside of Afghanistan in the years moving forward. In the case of Russia, which would be deeply ironic given its uh, involvement in uh, Afghanistan in the 1980s and the disastrous military occupation which cost the lives of thousands of uh, Russian troops and uh, countless Afghanis may seek to have a replay of the situation in uh, Syria. Uh, in the Syrian case, uh, Russia saw the, the vacuum left by a lack of American involvement to uh, send troops in to side and support with the Assad government, the government of Bashar al-Assad, and uh, Given that Afghanistan does border Russia, it would be in its uh, geopolitical interest to have uh, a deeper form of engagement. Um, And this would tie in well with kind of Putin's uh, desire to be um, more aggressive on the world stage. Going back to China, uh, China and Taiwan, the tensions between those two 
entities, not to set anyone off, um, continues to percolate and the centralization of authority inside of China and the increased bellicosity between both entities points to potential military action. And um, if there was a time for the Chinese to seriously think about making any moves, now would be one of them. Um, It's no secret that the American government uh, has in its withdrawal from Afghanistan left a belief among leaders globally that America doesn't have the military uh, commitment to honor some of its uh, existing agreements, one of which would be the one between the United States and and Taiwan for its defense. And with America moving out of a more robust engagement with the world, China may see its opportunity. So though it may not be the sole factor to make uh, China think about its Taiwan policy, it certainly may be a contributing factor to some form of military intervention in uh, the years to come. Those global geopolitical factors are going to come into play in Afghanistan. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you for giving us some clarity on this situation. I know that it's going to be constantly changing and we'll constantly keep an eye on it. But thank you for the context today. Uh, My pleasure. Do you have any other questions? Ask me anything. Ask me anything. Okay. Um, So talk about uh, a lot of reporting has been done on America's response and trying to bring, I think, over 70,000 people out of Afghanistan back to America. Can you talk about what's going on there? I know there's a lot of... uh, there's not a lot of clarity on that subject right now. Sure. I think the pace at which the Taliban took control of Kabul stunned American authorities and um, leftists on our leftists flat-footed when it came to the evacuation of both American personnel and geo personnel from, from other nation, uh, nation states, as well as um, evacuating the uh, Afghanis who had uh, helped us or and allied with us throughout the last 20 years. And um, it was inevitable to see that type of panic, given the swiftness of the fall of the Afghani um, military and government, and um, a lack of resources to cope with that demand to get out of the country, um, and the limited means in which America can now operate inside of Kabul, given the control by the Taliban. And, um, you know, looking, we're now looking down the barrel of a, of a shotgun with August 31st looming. And the situation is not going to get any better. In fact, the uh, amount of panic and um, will just only increase among the Afghanis left in in uh, Kabul. And um, it's it remains to be seen whether we will be able to to get uh, get them out in time. Are you optimistic about Afghanistan? going forward uh, now that you mentioned the Taliban no longer has the uh, kind of credo that they can they could say where they're driving the outsiders out do you are you optimistic that potentially Afghanistan would be able to create its own government in short no um, the the 
current situation in, in, in Afghanistan is, is untenable. Uh, the reality is that the Taliban government, um, if you want to call it that, that is now in power and in control of the vast majority of, of, of Afghanistan, were able to rally their forces against the outside singular entity and occupier, quote unquote, which resonates with the Afghani people across tribal lines. Now, once that core motivator is gone, a lot of the tribal fissures that have existed for centuries are going to come to the fore. And I would be hard pressed to see stability returning to Afghanistan anytime soon because there will be challenges to the Taliban rule inevitably. Even in 1996, even 1996 to 2001, the Northern Alliance never capitulated to the Taliban. And now the son of the former leader of the, of the Northern Alliance is again promising to resist to the, ver- to the bitter end. So in, I am not optimistic about short-term or long-term stability in Afghanistan. It's a very tragic situation for ordinary Afghanis. And um, how to solve this problem, in intractable in, in problem, is anyone's guess. That's one of the big questions is it seems like we've tried a lot of different solutions and it seems like a lot of none of them have really been successful. Do you have any uh, prescription for Afghanistan for things that you'd like to see them do that maybe they could bring their situation under control or things that the U.N. could even do? Well, you know, or is this just fated to to continue down this road? You know, there are certain systemic factors at play in Afghanistan that contribute to this um, ongoing instability. Number one is the essentially false creation of the nation state of Afghanistan. It was an artificial line drawn up during the British Empire that brought together disparate tribes that really had nothing to do with one another. And that tension exists to this very day. So that's one systemic factor that you have to take into consideration. Number two is that you're dealing with a population that has known nothing but war for 40 years, um, going all the way to the overthrow of the monarchy, to the Soviet occupation, to the internal civil war, to the rise of the Taliban, to the um, United States and NATO intervention in 2001, all the way to today. It has been a... At times, a hot war, at times a war of attrition, but it's a population that knows too well how to fight and not how to compromise. And so I think those two factors alone uh, make it an extraordinarily difficult environment in which to see any stability returning to. So this will be my final question, but putting yourself in the shoes of American operatives, American leadership, what lessons can we take from this? You know, I think that the last 20 years have been uh, very formative in terms, and I would hope very formative in terms of American lessons in foreign policy. Uh, We had the the Iraq war and the Afghani war. And I think that both situations left a lasting imprint on the American population and the American government. Number one is that it is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, 
to impose a form of government that is not organically developed. So if a, even though we see the merits of democracy and, and liberal democracy, if there's not a clear buy-in by the population, maintaining that, co- that um, form of government is extraordinarily difficult. Number two is that all of these actions are very resource intensive and it's a fool's bet to try to surmise a budget, a fixed budget, so to speak, for the cost of a military intervention because it always exceeds it. There are always unforeseen circumstances that arise when you bring in the destabilization of an existing system. And I think that um, moving forward, as much of it, as much as we want to see ourselves as problem solvers, we have to recognize our, the inherent limitations of trying to impose our style of governance on populations who are not ready for it. I think to a lot of people, it's not entirely clear where this policy of leaving Afghanistan started and how, in a lot of people's opinions, it seems to have escalated very quickly. Can you speak on, um, one, where the policy started, and two, how we got to the point where it seemed like almost overnight Joe Biden made the decision to to fully withdraw? Well, it wasn't overnight. It was a, uh, <clears throat> a process that actually began under the uh, Obama administration, but owing to the um, continued fragility of the Afghani government and uh, military, the American uh, government rem- chose to remain. And um, it was really only under the Trump administration that a formal process of negotiation began to occur with the Taliban and uh, other political parties in Afghanistan for a, a, a wholehearted uh, American withdrawal. Um, well, let me interject a question there. I thought we don't negotiate with the Taliban. We did. We did. Uh, we began negotiating with the Taliban as part of the Doha uh, peace process, which eventually, if you want to coin it as that, that eventually led to the Doha Accords. I mean, you have an image of um, the American emissary shaking hands with one of the emissaries of the Taliban. I mean, that was a very um, significant event in global political relations that was very underemphasized by the media. But the reality is that we've been negotiating with the Taliban for years. Um, they were, we ultimately realized for all of the reasons that I've stated before that continued military presence was not going to achieve our objectives in the region and was a continued uh, drain on our resources, both financial and militarily, that we had long lost the appetite to um, maintain. So with that being said, um, if Trump started this policy of withdrawal, uh, why is Joe Biden carrying it out? Well, it's really interesting. Like, If you look back at the history of uh, Joe Biden's um, views on foreign policy, he actually was never a fan of a continued presence of American troops in Afghanistan post the the elimination of the al-Qaeda threat. So this is not something new uh, for Joe Biden to want to get out. Um, And he realized very quickly once he assumed office that he 
um, would follow through with what Trump had said, <coughs> owing to the um, owing to the uh, realities on the ground and his d- policy agenda focusing on domestic priorities versus uh, international situations. And I think that he knew that um, a continued presence would not lead to any form of stability and would only cost more American lives and resources. And for that reason, he he made the decision to kind of pull the bandage. So does this mean that we no longer have troops in Afghanistan? And also, does this mean that we will no longer have troops in the Middle East? Well, there are still troops in Iraq. Um, again, it's something that the media doesn't really report, but when the um, resurgence, not the resurgence, but the surgence, I suppose, of ISIS came very close to toppling the Iraqi government, the Americans sent troops back in. And it's not something widely discussed, but they're still there. Um, in Afghanistan, of course, we will no longer have any form of a military presence. Um, and um, But we will continue to have our Air Force Command in, in or Central Command in Doha, in Qatar, uh, which has a substantial American military presence. Bahrain does as well. Um, so we will still have a presence in the Middle East, mm-hmm. but and military capabilities extending throughout the entire region. But boots on the ground will not be there in the form of any battalion. Now, whether, of course, we have any special forces actions to take out a specific terrorist threat, that could occur. But um, having entire divisions, no. Not in Afghanistan. We will not have a single boot on the ground outside of potential strategic strikes um, in the future. So with the Taliban now controlling the the formal government of um, Afghanistan, is there concern that there will be terrorist-sponsored activity um, in other countries that starts to occur out of Afghanistan now? Well, I guess if, if your question is that, are is there an increased threat of terrorist activity because of the fall of the Afghan uh, national government and the and the um, capturing of power by the Taliban, yes, I mean there's a, there's a certainly an increased uh, terror threat as a, as that type of um, or this forceful of a takeover of an entire country by Islamists will no doubt embolden other extremists globally. Uh, whether Afghanistan returns to its 1996-2001 period where it sheltered al-Qaeda and um, allowed an attack on American soil to originate from its country, that is an entirely separate question. Um, I hope that the United States government remains vigilant and um, utilizes its air capabilities as well as its special forces capabilities tactically eliminate those threats as and when they may occur. Um, it is very difficult to control Afghanistan, even even for the Taliban. They were never in full control of the country, even in 96 to 2001. So um, in certain lawless areas, can troops come? Potentially, yes. Gotcha. Um, and we're talking about potential destabilization and potential terrorism originating from Afghanistan, what would be some signs that we might see from the U.S. or from, you know, Europe of that destabilization occurring? 
Well, um, you know, the Taliban states that right now as they... Right now, the Taliban is stating that no formation of a government will occur until the United States and NATO fully withdraw. And what that means, no one really knows. Now, there are talks ongoing between different political factions of Afghanistan and the Taliban as to some form of government in the post-NATO era. Um, How that will last, no one knows given just the track record of Afghanistan and the uh, tribal divisions that are kind of cemented in society and the socioeconomic gaps between Kabul and the rest of the country and tying back to the theme of rural versus the urban. So the first signs we would probably see are probably an uptick in um, uh, bombings, um, whether it be suicide attacks or car bombs, whatever it may be, um, isolated terrorist incidents, all the way to full-scale battles between uh, rival warlords. So it's a very real possibility that that will occur. And this kind of uh, idea of having a a, uh, multi-pronged Afghani government is probably a fool's errand. So... Well, Asanka, thank you for joining me today. I hope that the listener took something away. I know that I definitely have. And uh, highly encourage the listener, keep updated with what's going on in Afghanistan. Do what you can to build your cultural knowledge because it affects all of us.